And as, please be seated, and as you're seated, turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 18 is our focus this morning as we continue our uh, verse by verse, section by section study through this book. Uh, if you need a Bible, we do have Bibles available on the back bookshelf. Please uh, pick one up and, and follow along with us as we know that this is uh, God's word for us. It's a word that he's given to us in love, and a word he's given to us in guidance and for understanding. So Genesis chapter 18, I'm going to start reading in verse 16 and to read through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is your word. This is your word which is given to us today. And Father, as we think through life in this world, God, would you help us to understand our life, our Christian life, our obedience to you in light of what we just read. Father, help us to apply that now by sending your spirit on us. Send your spirit upon me that I may speak forth your truth boldly and accurately. God, we thank you for the grace and mercy you give us to help us with this. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. 
Amen. Well, the amount of sin and evil that is in the world can be overwhelming. And the question that we want to look at today is, what do we do about the sin and evil that we see around us in the world? Just pick up a newspaper or click on any website and you see the amount of sin and wickedness and evil that is around the world. Uh, one set of headlines over the last couple of weeks has been just a number of mass murders which have happened across our country. Um, you know, just horrendous acts of evil which have been perpetuated. As I see John and Olia Powell here, I'm reminded of another set of headlines of wars that exist around the world and the, the tremendous amount of evil that can happen um, in war zones, uh, places of conflict. I recently have been reading headlines about different um, organizations which have, which have uh, fraudulently stolen hundreds of millions in dollars from, uh, from investors and people stealing from, from, from others. I've read another set of headlines over this past bit which speak about the sexual degradation of our culture and world and, and to the effect that women and children uh, do not feel safe and they are often targeted for sexual violence. You know, what do we do with all of this evil which is around us? What do we do with all the evil that's in the world? You know, we can speak about the language. We can speak about the disregard for God. We can talk about the, the mocking of righteousness, the anger, all these things that are around us. It's all around. And what do we do? We often don't know what to do. For some of us, it leads us into anxiety and worry. Maybe I mentioned some of these things that it pops up something in your mind and you feel your heart rate go up a little bit and you think, oh yeah, I remember this. I got to do something about this. Your, your heart begins to race. You begin to think about what answers that you need to do and something you need to do about it. And often our response to that anxiety and worry is just, it's, it's not helpful. It's off-putting to so many people, maybe around us, maybe not helpful to the end. To some evil makes, or the evil around makes us cynical and selfish, thinking that there's nothing we can do. We do nothing, and said we look out for ourselves. There's a, a nihilism, a living for the self. Nothing matters, so might as well just um, live my own life and become as prosperous as I can. Sometimes people give up and themselves and just say, hey, maybe some sort of dictator or something can solve all of our problems. If just, if just we get the right people there, they can, um, they can solve these problems. We'll even give up all this freedom in order to have it. And other times people, it just sparks them up in anger or in violence. That zeal for righteousness uh, leads to some to, to even violate the will of God uh, for them because of response to others. And it's an improper response to an improper thing to begin with. See, these things should not be, and, and these sort of responses neutralize us from the power that God has for us and the, the plans that he has for his, his people in the world, right? They wrap us up in worry and depression and anger and ultimately ineffectiveness. You know, the enemy of the gospel, that's the world, the flesh, and the devil, um, you know, the, enemy of the, the enemies of the gospel want you to do nothing. They want you to compromise your testimony either by doing nothing or by um, doing something else which is contrary to God's will. They want you to, to give up on God, to love the world, to be indifferent to the suffering of the people around us. What should we do? We get a good example of God's call upon us as we look at Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33, our text this morning. Now this is uh, first of at least two sermons, which I'm going to call my Christmas sermons, on Sodom and Gomorrah. All right? 
I thought, I thought, really? I mean, Lord, this is the text that you have for us today. Maybe I should pick something happier or better. But, but I'll just get to share how we'd go through the text, verse by verse through this. What does God have for us? Let's see what he has for us today. But we'll see by the time we get to this that there is an important Advent connection, which we see even in a passage that is uh, like this. And it's going to be really important to, uh, to see. So... And that's because, you know, as we see God's interactions with Abraham on Sodom and Gomorrah, they are helpful for us as we look at the evil inside of our world. Many people feel powerless with the amount of evil that's in the world. Um, Even Abraham in our story had zero um, ability to make changes in Sodom. And we can feel like that at times. And that's why the things that happen here are important. And there are things that we need to do before we do anything else. Now today, I am not going to say everything that we do in the face of evil, Um, just some necessary things that we need to see that are in place before we do anything else, because there are times to act that we're not going to get in today, times that you, um, you know, you can vote, you can protest, you can lobby, you can speak, you know, there there are lots of issues, ways that we at times need to act in, in, um, that are right and proper. But there are critical things we want to talk about today that God has for his church, that God has for his people. And these are ways to remember that he is in control. So these are our three things we want to look at today, things to consider, being part of God's kingdom in response to evil inside of our world. The first thing we need to consider is the purpose of God's people, the purpose of God's people. When we're confronted with sin and evil, uh, we need to go back to the question, you know, we think about our response, think, why are we here? Why are we here in light of this? Now, in Genesis 18, if we go back a couple weeks ago, when we looked at verses 1 through 15, we see there was a very special visit that took place. Uh, Three men came to visit Abraham, and they spoke to him as he was resting in his tent. And we realized then who those three men were, that two of them were angels that came from the Lord, and one of them was the Lord himself who had come in some sort of physical manifestation before him. We call that a theophany. It's a, it's a time that God, to bring a special message, takes on a human form and appears uh, to his people. Now, as we look to verse 16 then, we see that this special visit had come to an end. It was time um, to move on to what was next. We read in verse 16, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Now, this looking down that we see in verse 16 is not just sightseeing or marveling at the landscape that's before them from a tall mountain. It is a pointer of God's upcoming evaluation, his judgment and punishment, which is coming. And we know that because we can look at verses 20 and 21 and we see what's going on. Why is God looking down? Verse 20 and 21, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. There are other times that God says he's going to come down and see. Um, If you look at Genesis chapter 11, verse 5, it talks about God in heaven coming down to see the building of the Tower of Babel. But it's not coming down just to check things out as if he doesn't know, but it's coming down again, judgment evaluation, and even discipline as a result of that. 
So here, God knows this, the evil, and he knows the unrighteousness of the city that's going, that's going on there. And he is going into the world to prove, or he's going into the city to prove that the judgment that is to come is righteous and just. He knows what's going to happen. These angels know what's going to happen as they go into the city. If you know uh, Genesis 19, as we'll get to next week, you know, it's, there's horrendous evil that takes place there. But the language that he uses here is anthropomorphism. It's given a, 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 a human understanding to something that God does. You know, God is going down um, to see, because again, he knows what's going to happen, but he's speaking about his justice, he's speaking about his care, he's speaking about his involvement uh, with the human processes that are going on there in the city. Right? And that should be a good encouragement to us, and that's because God is aware of sin and evil in the world. The things that that happen in this world are of great interest to God. He hears the outcry of the oppressed. He hears the abuse of, of women and children or others who are suffering in the hands of others. He knows the difficulties of the poor who are being taken advantage by others. He hears the victims of violence, whom God hears. And here he comes in to look, he's gonna deal with that outcry. But this is not something that will happen in secret. There may have been many uh, cities that have been destroyed before the, in secret. But in this one, we see in verse 16, Abraham is going to know about. We see in verse, verse 17. Verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So God hears this outcry of sin and evil from Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to judge those cities, and he wants Abraham to see the consequence of this sin and this evil. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And Abraham is going to see a picture of that right before him. And that's because when we look at verse 18, that Abraham is called to be a great and mighty nation. And it's a great and mighty nation that is going to bless the nations of the Lord. And so he needs to see, and God is having him see, that sin and evil lead to death and judgment at, even at God's hands. And it, it is a warning to Abraham as he watches this. As Abraham, it's a warning to his children and his descendants after him. The nation that he builds, the family he raises, is supposed to be totally different. They were to live in holiness. They were to live in obedience to God's commands. They would know the consequences of sin. They would know the blessings in faithful obedience. And if Abraham and his people saw that they were supposed to be different from the wicked cities like Sodom, they could bless the world with something truly good. As Christians, we believe that there is an absolute truth. that comes from the Lord. We believe that God has given us ethical rules. The truth or ethics are not relative. They're not dependent on the person. They're not dependent on the particular culture. That there are universal laws which govern the universe. And to violate those is not only against God's law, but it also incurs his judgment and his wrath. There are things that are contrary to God's law. And those, those are judged. Now the world around us, the people around us, they may not believe that. You know, people we hear, they want to believe that all things are relative and there is no absolute truth and there's a rejection of a, of, a, of, a, of a Christian ethic, you know, but we know that it is true. You can see it in the, the, the outworkings around the Ten Commandments. It's geared around the two great commandments of loving God and loving our neighbors. 
We're called to live a life that's centered on honoring the Lord as God, that respects all authority, that respects life, that tells the truth, upholds sexual purity, that respects private ownership, that lives contentedly. I mean, these are things that Sodom brazenly ignored and, and the, the things even our own culture rejects. And this is why it's doubly evil when Christians violate commands like this. Right? Abraham was called to be a different nation. He was supposed to see this because you're to be a nation, he says, that blesses the other nations. And in the same way, we too have been rescued from God's judgment. We, we too are there and, and we're called to build a church which lives differently with different values than the world holds, which loves God's law and delights in it and, 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 and loves truth and points people to a relation with Christ. And when uh, Christians and the church openly, flagrantly sin, you know, we see it's contrary to God's purposes for his people as we see there in verses 17 and 18. Why do we keep doing the things that cause destruction? So we belong to another kingdom. We know what's going to happen to sin. We know what happens as a result of sin. And the calling of the church is to show people there's a different way to live under Christ's authority, to have sin forgiven. We leave the judgment of the world and we come into God's kingdom in Jesus Christ. And, and that's the sort of inspiration, that's sort of hope, and also realization of the consequences that causes us to live differently. Like we have a genuine purpose and calling while we're here in this world. Well, there's a second truth we need to realize about the world that we live in, not just our purpose, but we also want to see the, the second thing we need to realize is the popularity of sin. Sorry, in verse 22, we see this negotiation between um, Abraham and God. And Abraham must have heard the same things that, that God had heard. Um, he knows the city is terrible. He knows that God is going to judge the city. And so he starts negotiating with God about what's going to happen. And we read the, the text earlier, but you remember at first he asked if God would still judge if there were 50 righteous people. It's an appeal to God's justice, a sense of what's right. And, and surely God would not judge the whole city if there was a remnant of good righteous people within it, right? And as he speaks to the Lord, a few things become evident. Most of all, it becomes evident that there are not 50 righteous people within the city. Maybe the standard is too high. There's not 45, and there's not 40, there's not 30, there's not 20. And while he settles on 10, as we know from the next chapter, there wasn't even 10. I think he just keeps going lower and lower until he realizes what Romans 3, verses 10 through 12 tell us. Romans 3, 10 and 12 say that none is righteous no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. None is righteous. How many righteous are there? There's ultimately zero. How many of us are righteous in ourselves even in this room? Ultimately, zero. You know, he's pointing to this, the pro, what I'm calling the popularity of sin here. Now, Abraham, as he talks his way down to 10, may have had Lot, his nephew, in, in mind. Um, his nephew Lot was in that city, as we'll see next week, and we know in Second Peter 2, 7, that Lot is called righteous, and um, as difficult as it is to consider Lot as righteous sometimes, as we'll see next week, um, that the city of Sodom is worse. It showed how mankind can sink so low if the external restraints are removed. Sodom as a whole had become corrupt. They had let go of the moral laws which would keep um, sin and evil in check. It's like they encourage one another to sin. 
It's a reminder of that book, The Lord of the Flies, right, where you have these boys that are stranded on a deserted island. And while they try to start off things right at first, that over time they become more and more degraded, depraved. You know, this is a, a real historical example of, of that. It's the popularity of sin. It has this infectious power over life and over culture, like a bad disease. It's part of our lives, and it was part of every member of, um, it, it, was, it was part of every citizen of the city of Sodom. They'd given themselves totally to it without restraint. And we need to be cautious, even ourselves, that we don't get wrapped up in this love of the world and sin. There's a few things I want to look at from Abraham's conversation with God here, though, uh, things that should encourage us in our faith with God. And the first thing I want to look at is the question behind Abraham's question, right? Because he asked the question of God, what it was due. But there's, a, there's really a question behind that. As Abraham's overwhelmed by God's judgment, brings the question, is God being too harsh with his judgment? People ask this today about God. Is, is hell too harsh a judgment for sin? Is the idea of our eternal hell makes God some sort of monster that he would judge sin to send people there? Now, there is a dangerous assumption that is behind this, and it's a dangerous assumption that we are somehow more kind than God. It's the belief that since I would never judge them or that I would never send a person to hell, that somehow it makes us more just or more loving or more kind than, than God, and that just cannot be. I mean, we can't forget what we see in verse 20 that God heard the outcry against their sin, and their sin is very grave. And in order to understand this, we have to realize just how awful sin is, just how awful that it is. I mean, we are created, every one of us, created in the image of God, and our purpose is to reflect his divine glory, his holiness, his goodness, his kindness out into the world. But what have we done? We have taken that very image and we've corrupted it and we've used it for our own selfish pleasures, for hate, for violence, for lust, for the pursuit of our own pleasures, and we've disregarded the very image bearer, um, the, the, the very image we're supposed to bear uh, the image of. I mean, our sin is very great. And since we're finite, we don't even get a sense of the consequences of any of our sins. I mean, we don't see the long-ranging influences of it. We might see some short things, but we don't see very far. We don't see those ripple effects. But God's omniscient. He's aware of those things. God hears the outcry of people in a fallen world. He knows how we've misused his image for sinful purposes. We will never be kinder than God. And it takes uh, a, a lot of pride to think that God is mistaking in his judgment of hell. We may not understand it, but we're not justified in our thinking that we are more kind than him. As we think about the kindness of God in Jesus, the Bible says in um, Romans 5.8 that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. You know, we can't hold a candle up to his love that we'd be such lawbreakers and he would still send Christ for us. A second thing I want to point out is the conversation Abraham has with God here. Because what does Abraham do? But he brings his doubt, he brings his concerns to God with great respect. And while he doesn't understand, he talks with God through his understanding. And as he begins to go through these numbers, lower and lower, what do you think that Abraham learns? And what do we learn? You know, as we bring our doubts, as we bring our concerns, we bring the things that we wonder about, we bring them to God in prayer, we continue to read his word, we wrestle with these things, trusting in that God has answers, and then we look and we talk to him in them. 
The third thing we'd see here is the certainty of judgment of sin and evil. You know, this is the result of sin. It's the consequence. The wages of sin is death. And that those who live according to sin, whether they're, you know, even if it comes from the outside influence of the world, the wages of sin continues to be death. And as we put ourselves in place where we seek the approval of others, as we seek the approval of culture, if we choose to follow our heart with whatever that means, usually that means it's what everybody else is doing, you'll know the judgment of God. There's an inevitability of sin and judgment. As Hebrews chapter 9 says, it's destined for man to die, to die and then after that to face judgment. But if you seek God's approval through faith in Jesus Christ, there's life. The whole city of Sodom had gone after sin. So if you look at your doors, you see the popularity of sin, you see how people love to do what God forbids, but we know that there is no blessing in it. There's only cursing in it. Do we really believe that? Right? Are we willing to stand in the Lord, reject the sin and evil of the world, even when we see the world moving away from God, moving away from us, even moving away in mass? Right? There's a popularity to sin, and we have to wrestle with that. All of Sodom had, and our world has, in so many ways as well. The third thing we want to look at today is the place of the church. And we want to get back to that original question of what do we do? What do we do when we see sin and iniquity around us? What did Abraham do? When he's confronted with this, he prayed. Do you see that? He prays for the people of Sodom. I mean, he cares enough for the people of Sodom that he uh, prays that maybe somehow that they can be spared for that judgment to come. It reminds us of the importance of intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is bringing um, the specific needs of specific people in prayer before the Lord. And what Abraham does is he puts himself between, between God and the people of Sodom. I mean, he's praying things for them that they will not even pray for themselves. He, he doesn't even, they don't even know he's praying for them. But yet he is. What about you? Are you praying for the people around you? Are you praying for the people in your life who currently are on their way to hell? They don't know Jesus Christ. They're, they're lost in their rebellion. Their, their hearts are bent against God and what is true and what is good. Are you praying that God would spare them the horrors of hell and evil and judgment? Or the, the horrors of hell and judgment? Are you praying that God would give them life instead? God loved that we would pray. Well, we have such models of intercessory prayer inside of the Bible. We have Jesus praying for um, Israel, praying for Jerusalem. We have Moses, um, Ezra, Elijah, Daniel, Nehemiah, Stephen, the Apostle Paul. They prayed for others. Do we pray for others? It's easy to pray for health, for comfort, for finances, for jobs, and those things. But do we pray for souls? Do we include the, the, the salvation of people um, that are around us. They would know Jesus Christ. Part of our care group this week is to pray for people that, we'd know, that, that we know they'd repent of their sins, that they would uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would find life and find eternal life and escape from this judgment. That's why we do our top 10 list periodically. You know, again, remember your top 10 list from <coughs> earlier this year. People, some people that you said, I'm going to be praying for these people over the year. Are you still praying for them? Just a reminder, keep praying. Bring them before the Lord and see what God does in answer to that prayer. 
So prayer is one thing we can do, but there's two more critical things that grow out of it. It's evangelism and discipleship. Because remember what Abraham is supposed to build. He's building a great nation. That nation is to be um, different than the nations around, and it's to be a blessing to the other nations. A blessing because it's built on God's commands, it's built on God's wisdom, and it shares that with, with, with others. It's a kingdom that's built on justice, righteousness, and life. And as we pray for those who don't know Christ, we invite them to be part of Christ's kingdom. The work of evangelism is the work of inviting people to move out of the city of destruction and to move towards what John Bunyan called the celestial city. You know, John Bunyan wrote a wonderful book called uh, Pilgrim's Progress. I hope you've read it. Maybe you've read it even numerous times. And you remember what the basic story is. You have the, the, the main character is named Christian. And Christian is leaving what? The city of destruction. What do you think that's modeled after? Sodom, right? It's a city which is going to be burned in, 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 in ashes and, and um, sulfur and fire. He's leaving that, but he's moving where? To the celestial city. He's escaping for his life. It's a reminder to us that just like Sodom, this world of sin will one day be destroyed as God brings in his new kingdom. And so we invite others to move from this life of sin and evil and the control of that and to trust God by faith and to walk with him. And so we have an important mission. Right? We have to see the nature of the world around us. It's, it's Sodom. We don't forget that. And it faces the judgment of Sodom. And we do what we can to make, help people out of that, to, to point people to Christ in the way of escape. And at times, we know that's going to cause discomfort. It's going to cause discomfort even as congregations. We adjust to um, inviting people to come in and making space for them. It's the discomfort of talking to somebody about matters of eternal significance or, 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 or matters of behavior. We need to point them to Jesus Christ. The Bible says, Don't be ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. And why do you think it has to say that? It's because sometimes we begin to talk about it and we feel a bit of embarrassment or shame to talk about it. But no, we know that this is a way of salvation. Proverbs chapter 24 is in verse 11 and 12. I'm going to turn there. Proverbs 24, 11 and 12 was one of these verses that as I read it, I said, I can't not go into pastoral ministry. When I read it, you know, it was one of those verses that gave me personal conviction of what I needed to do. It says this, it says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay a man according to his work? You know, we see Sodom all around us. It's a kingdom that is destined for judgment. We see the commitment of people to this worldly kingdom. And will we care enough, will we love enough to reach out to them with the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ? We can't say, well, we didn't know. I can't say it didn't matter, but it does. Do you know who cared a lot about it? And that's Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He cared enough about it to enter into this sinful world to reach us in it. Right? That's what we remember during Advent. Right? It is the, the, the remembrance of the coming of the Son of God into this sinful world. 
So remember who he is. Who is, who is Jesus? He is the eternal son of God. And so there he was from eternity past, dwelling in heaven, dwelling in a place of perfection, a place of glory, of golden streets, a place without sin or evil or tears. And he had no place in this world of sin and evil. Right? He was kind of like Abraham, overlooking the city that was set for destruction. Right? But he just didn't look on the world as it was and leave it that way. Because he... He heard the outcry of the world. He saw the sin, the evil, the pain, and he entered into this world taking on the form of a little baby in order to redeem a people for himself, to take people out of that city of destruction, take us out of it. Our communion hymn is uh, hymn 230, but it's just a reminder to us of what Jesus did. Uh, Thou who is rich beyond all splendor, you know, tells about what Jesus did in, in leaving this glory and, and coming into this world because he cared to redeem a people for himself. Verse 1 says, Thou who is rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became as poor. Thrones, traded thrones for a manger, did surrender. Sapphire paved courts, he traded for a stable floor. Thou who is rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. He entered this world, not only leaving the glory of that, but entering this world of murder, of lies, of deceit, of coveting, and adultery, in order to redeem a people who are stumbling towards slaughter. That's what he did. He came to save us. He carried out Proverbs 24. And why? Because he loves his people. He wanted to deliver his people from sin and judgment, the sin and judgment which is coming on the world. And instead of coming as a judge for them, he came to take the judgment of the people on himself. See, he was judged so that we would not need to be judged. Have you trusted Christ? Every one of us here will either know Christ as judge or as the one who has taken judgment away from us. And that's what we remember at Advent. Christ came to take away judgment for us. And we also remember at Advent that he will come again. And he will come to bring judgment. And we look, as we look at the outcry of the earth, the sin, the suffering, and the evil of this world, and we say, come Lord Jesus, bring your kingdom. We look forward to that kingdom. Jesus Christ has prayed for his people. He's come to deliver them. And that is our joy during Advent. He didn't stay as judge, but he came as savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know the outcry of the world. You hear it, the sin, the evil, the oppression. Father, we know it. We know it in our own smaller sense for what we've faced and even what we've done. God, we pray, Lord, as we look out into the world, we pray for rescue and deliverance. We pray, God, for courage for ourselves and our church to make Christ known. We pray, God, that you would make us open. Father, to receive um, to, open to making Christ known for the sacrifice it means, for the discomfort that it is. Father, because it's so important for the people who are there. Father, build your church from those who would otherwise be destined to judgment. Continue to draw people out, just as you've driven, drawn us out of judgment, out of that city of destruction. Father, moving towards the celestial city, eternal life in heaven. Thank you, God, for your grace and mercy in that that you had on us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.